Welcome to the teachings of Pastor Mike Yost of the Springs Calvary Chapel in Habern, Idaho. Please join us as we study the Word of God. Exciting stuff we've got. We're in the Gospel of Luke. We're in chapter 19. We did not finish last week, but we did begin uh, triumphal entry, Palm Sunday. Jesus came in on a donkey with all the disciples waving palm fronds, throwing their clothes on the ground as they came in. They were singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And the religious hypocrites said, hush up, shh. Jesus would reply to them, if these people would be quiet, immediately these stones would cry out. <laughs> is he worthy? Do you feel the word is, world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? But do you know that the dark won't stop the light from getting through. Do you wish it were all made new? And last week in verse 41 of chapter 19, now as he, Jesus, drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, if you had known, even you especially this, your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes because you did not know the hour of your visitation. Jesus wept. Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? It is. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? <laughs> the Lion of Judah who conquered the grave. He was David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom me, the slave. He is worthy. He is worthy of all blessing and honor and glory. He is worthy of all this. And we come to Monday morning. That was the triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, Nisan 10 on the Jewish calendar, the beginning of the Passover celebration. Monday morning, verse 45, then he, Jesus, went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in it, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. And he was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything, for all the people were very attentive to hear him. Amen. He goes into the temple and drove up those who bought and sold in it. 
And we're going to see this morning a question of authority, a question of power, a question of worthiness. Is he worthy? Does he have the authority to do these things? Authority in the Greek, exousia. But it really means, it comes from this idea of the source, the origin, the author. Authority comes from the author. He who, in the beginning, spoke and light was. Authority comes from the author who wrote his story from beginning to end. He's worthy. And so he comes into the temple and cleanses it. Now, if you are a Bible scholar, you might know, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, that this story comes early on in John's Gospel in chapter 2. And I'm going to read a little bit about that and discuss it with you. And this is one of these classic, and it's an unsolved question. Did Jesus cleanse the temple once or twice? I'll let you know, I think he did it twice. I think we read it in John, he did it in the beginning, and here we're reading it this morning, he did it again. As often as it would need it, he would clean it, just as he would wash our feet as often as we need them. But in John's gospel, in John chapter 2, beginning of verse 16, we read, And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. This is a quote out of Psalm 69, 9. So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you show us since you do these things? Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them, and they believed the Scripture and the word which Jesus had said. I do believe that what we're reading this morning in Luke chapter 19 is three years later in his ministry, 49 years into the construction of the physical temple, Herod's um, upgrade, if you will, from the temple that Zerubbabel built when they came back from the Babylonian exile. King Herod was uh, a great, they call him Herod the Great, and because he was a man of short stature, but he had big projects. He had the purse strings of the government and the people, and he did a lot of things. And one of them was expand the temple. And this is King Herod's temple. The actual construction continued on for quite a few more years until it was torn down in AD 70 by the Romans. But here, this morning, he went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold, saying to them, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of of thieves. And indeed, what had happened was a group of religious racketeers, aka King Herod's family, had the concession. They had the franchise on what was bought and sold in the temple. In Deuteronomy, in chapter 14, we read in verses 24 through 26 that a pilgrim 
coming to the temple during the Shalosh Regalim, the three required festivals or any other time, if they came from a long ways away and they wanted to bring an offering, they wanted to bring a dove or a lamb for a sacrifice, that it was okay if they had to travel a great distance to bring money. And then when they got to Jerusalem to purchase a sacrifice for that. And Herod and company understood this, and they had exorbitant exchange rates. They would take the money of the realm, the Roman coin, and exchange it for the temple money. And the exchange rate was often 10 to 15 to 1. So if you gave them a buck, you'd get 15 cents or 10 cents back. And then with this diminished amount of money, you'd go and buy an authorized lamb without spot or without blemish from them to then bring an offer at the sacrifice. Josephus, the historian in Jesus' day, accounted that at Passover, which we're reading this morning, at Passover, it was not uncommon for 250,000 lambs to be sacrificed during the feast. And so, these guys made bank a lot of money. Like I said, religious racketeers. And Jesus says, this, it is written, my house is a house of prayer, and you have made it a den of thieves. Solomon, King Solomon, in dedicating the temple, prayed a prayer. It was a beautiful prayer with many beautiful parts to it, but I want to read part of the prayer to you out of 1 Kings chapter 8, beginning at verse 41. Solomon praying says, Moreover, concerning a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, but has come from a far country for your namesake, here in heaven your dwelling place, and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, that they may know that this temple which I have built is called by your name. And sure enough, these money changers, these extortioners would set up in the outer court of the temple. The temple was built with walls for entrance. You come through certain doors, and the first area that you would come to, which is the largest area, was called the court of the Gentiles. That, that way, people who weren't Jewish could come in and admire the temple, and they could even give gifts to the temple. They weren't, they weren't against taking money from foreigners or non-Jews. They would, they would receive all that, but then there was a barricade and on the sign of the barricade said that if you are not Jewish and you cross this barrier, you have responsibility for your own life, which is to say they would kill you and the blood's on your head because you shouldn't have come any closer. Anyways, in these outer courts, they would set up their booths, these money changers booths, and they would change the Roman coinage for the Jewish coinage, and then they would use that coinage, the diminished amount, to go about buying whatever offering they wanted to sacrifice. And this infuriated Jesus, and he had to clean the temple more than once. This was a lucrative racket these religious hypocrites were participating in, selling salvation. Verse 47, and he was teaching daily in the temple, so he continued teaching. And I love this about Jesus. You know, there's preaching and there's teaching. 
preaching, that's declaring the gospel, the good news that God has sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to live a sinless life, but then die for your sin. Take that debt to the cross and bury it forever. Hallelujah, good news. And even better news, and rise on the third day according to the Scriptures, just as it has written. This is the authentication. This is the authority that what Jesus said He came to do was, in fact, true. The resurrection from the dead. That undersigns everything that he said and done. It's truth. Take it to the bank. He was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests, the scribes, and the leaders of the people sought to destroy him and were unable to do anything for all the people were very attentive to hear from him. So sad in all of this that the best that the religious people can do is for purpose to, to have a coup to take out their Messiah, an assassination conspiracy. This is the, the height that they can rise to, these religious leaders. And yet it didn't cause Jesus to pause. He continued forward in the authority that he was vested with. God, incarnate, originator of heaven and earth, author of the book. And so he continued to teach and explain and help the common people who were anxious to know this is the way, walk in it. This is the truth, live in it. This is the life, receive it. And people were so excited to do that. Chapter 20, verse 1, now it happened on one of those days, so this goes on several days, and think about this for just a minute as you put together all of these things, right? This is the triumphal entry, uh, Passover week, we call it Palm Sunday and the Passion Week. Everybody's so excited for their king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is weeping. He goes and he says, man, you guys are missing it. It breaks my heart. And the religious leaders come up against him. But this wasn't his first trip into Jerusalem. The Gospels record four Passovers. This is his last one. But he's been to town before. We read in John chapter 2, first time in. He turned over the money changers table. He's already a marked man. He's got a target. People know who this guy is when he comes to town. And so they're working, they're plotting how they might destroy him. So it happened in one of those days, here he is in the temple over the course of Passion Week, as he taught the people in the temple and preached the gospel that the chief priests and scribes gathered together with the elders and confronted him and spoke to him saying, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? By what right do you do these things? Where do you get your authority, right? And, and, and these guys, the chief priests, they're supposed to be the representatives of God to the people. If you need to talk to God, come to a priest. He'll set you straight. 
okay? The scribes, they were the lawyers, which is to say they were experts in the law, the law of Moses. So they were supposed to be the teachers of Scripture, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And the elders were there to make judgment and to decide right from wrong, good from evil. And Jesus was stepping on their turf. As far as preaching, coming, uh, stepping on the priest, you know, uh, area of responsibility, if you will. Um, what, what kind of rabbi are you? What school did you go to? What, where, what is your training? What is your degree? How did you come about this authority? For the scribes, those lawyers teaching the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of heaven, where did you get all this? We read in Mark chapter 1 at verse 14. Now, after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus came to Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Believe in the good news. Your sins are forgiven. I have died for it. I bled for it. All you have to do is receive it. Be grateful for it. Live in it. You've been forgiven. The good news, the gospel. And here is Jesus. He's teaching. He's preaching. Sharing the gospel. Loving the people. And the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders are arguing. It's all they can do. What's your authority? Right? By what right do you get off doing all of these different things? And Jesus turns over the money changers' tables, right? I came to help judge between God and mammon. I helped to become the Word made flesh and dwelt among you. I came to show you the way, the truth, and the life. But nevertheless, this contest, this, this feud goes on. What, tell us, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who is he who gave you this authority? They were so concerned about their lineage. Where, where do you get this, this stuff? Where do you get these ideas? And, and yet, the people gladly followed him. He makes perfect sense to me. I see what he's talking about. He's not ripping me off. He's not giving me this terrible rate of exchange. He's not causing us to stand up, sit down, rah, rah, rah. He's just loving us. He's showing us real life, just the way we have to live it. And God, who loves us, and they love that. Verse 3, but he answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing and answer me. This is a really good little passage, chapter 20, on apologetics. Apologetics, $5 word they throw around in seminary. It comes from the idea not to apologize or say, I'm sorry. That's what we think of often when we think of apologies. But it's to give an explanation. We might apologize by explaining why we were late or, or something like that, but the, the heart of an apologist is to explain, to give a defense for what you believe in. So he answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing. He answered with a question. Just a quick little, you know, side note if you make notes for yourself. When you get into it with your neighbors, your friends, your family, you're sharing the good news, the gospel, the kingdom of God, repent, you know, and be blessed and all this kind of stuff, and they start wanting to argue, 
about your authority. Where'd you get the authority? You ever have that happen to you? Oh, excellent way of dealing with that is to ask them questions. Well, where's your authority? Where do you come from? What is your philosophy of life? Tell me, how does this work in your world, and how is that working for you? Those are a string of questions. It just rocks them back on their heel. You see, you're not required to defend Jesus Christ. All you need to do is let Him stand up in front of you. Just bring Him into the equation and let the Scriptures, let the Holy Spirit, let the the story of Jesus stand in your place. Let the testimony of what Christ has done stand in your place. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure this all out. Just show them Jesus. Then they have to decide what they're going to do with it. So he asks them a question, and he says, I'll answer you if you answer me, okay? The baptism of John. This is speaking of John the Baptist, okay? The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reason among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe? See, he's trying to establish authority. This baptism, John, right? Kind of a, a what does they call him, creepy John? <laughs> and some of, some of the things out there, he was an odd bird. He was different. He wasn't normal, right? Living out in the desert, kind of all by himself, kind of hermit style, wearing just a tattered old robe and leather belt, eating honey and locust. And here he is down by the Jordan River and saying, repent, turn or burn. And people are like, I'm turning, man. And they're coming down and he's just dunking them right and left, right? What gave you the right, John, to dunk people, to baptize people? That idea of baptizo, to immerse, they would use water symbolically, but what it was was a picture, and proselytites to Judaism would do this if they wanted to convert to Judaism. They would say, basically, I'm being buried to my old life as a Gentile, a heathen, a sinner, and now I'm rising in my new life and my new spirit. And this is what this baptism was. But what gives you, John, the right to baptize anybody? I think I read something about this this morning in the announcements. Wait, tarry in Jerusalem till you are endued with power from on high, that you may be my witnesses that you may be able to go forth and proclaim the gospel, the good news, preach it, teach it, baptize it, live it, walk it out in your community. And any one of you who has confessed Jesus as Lord, believes in your heart, God has raised Him from the dead, and you're in the train, and you're going to heaven too, and you're walking as best as you know how, according to His word, His way, His life, you are authorized to baptize. You are authorized to preach. You are authorized to teach. Now, I would encourage you to stay in your lane, right? I know when I first became a Christian, I was kind of concerned that I would be sharing at a Bible study 
because I was going to a Bible study. The next thing you know, I was the guy who went out and bought a bunch of commentaries, and I would look at my Bible helps and my dictionaries, and I tried to figure out exactly what this all means. And I'd show up at the Bible study a little bit more prepared maybe than some of the rest of the guys at the Bible study because I was hungry for the Lord. I wanted to know the truth. I wanted Jesus' full strength. Give me every bit of it. And in that process, somehow I ended up, by default, becoming the leader and the teacher. I am a knucklehead on Christ. I am a sinner saved by grace. All I've got, all I know is that I once was blind and now I see. All I have is the Bible and His Holy Spirit. If you will just humbly take that and take what you've received, experienced, lived out, and share it, it's sufficient. And if you choose to teach, I recommend you choose to study to show yourself approved, a workman that need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But in all of this, what gave John the power, the authority to baptize? Yeah, he's a son of a priest, but he kind of was one of those prodigals, if you will. He was not following in the priesthood, as they reckoned it. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? They recognized John the Baptist had a special following. You know, in Jesus' day, and this is something that's hard for us to understand because we've grown up that Jesus is the central character of the story, of the Scriptures, of the Bible. But here, in John, Luke, Matthew, Mark, the Gospels, this is all brand new, all real and all raw. And the headline name was John the Baptist. That's who everybody knew from the lowest to the highest across all sectors of society. Everybody knew about and heard John and everybody's following John. And John is great. He's ushering in the Messiah. In fact, we read in the Scriptures in Malachi chapter 1, Behold, I send before you my messenger. He's going to come at the end of the age, and he's going to be the one to introduce you to Messiah, your deliverer, the Christ. And in fact, John the Baptist did exactly that out in the wilderness, prepare Make way, the king is coming, and people are getting baptized, and he is, according to the scriptures, according to the authority of the Holy Spirit, doing exactly that, but they're having a problem. Does this come from men or the people? And if we say it came from, um, but if we say from men, all the people will stone us, for they are persuaded that John was a prophet. And in fact, he was a prophet. Um, in John chapter 18, Jesus, speaking of John, he says to them, 
to some of his disciples. John got thrown in prison, and they were worried. Is John the Baptist actually the right guy? Um, and so John sent his disciples. John the Baptist has sent us in verse 20 of Luke 7. He sent us to us saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? There were some people that had questions. They had doubts. Is John the Baptist really the guy, the messenger, the herald of the Messiah? And Jesus would answer, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. Yes, he is the coming one. But if you're thinking he's coming in glory and he's going to rule and reign on the throne, don't get offended by this. You've missed part of the gospel. You don't understand that. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. He goes on to say in Luke chapter 7, speaking of John the Baptist, when the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes, all the people. They had the same questions concerning John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, that's obviously, we didn't just go out there to watch the wind blow a bunch of weeds around. But what did you go to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Uh, no, we heard that's not exactly how he rolled. That wasn't his dress code. Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, quoting out of Isaiah chapter 40, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. They received his authority. The scriptures spoke of it. Malachi, Isaiah, the things that he did, the evidence was, was self-evident. And the Lord said, to what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. They didn't want to have anything to do with Jesus or John the Baptist, and they're trying to get out. They're trying to wiggle out of this difficult question that they can't figure out, this question of authority. So they answered that they did not know where it was from. I don't know. Do this with your friends, and I mean, it's kind of fun, okay? But got to have the right heart, okay? We're not making fun of people, but it is fun. When you get people who want to quarrel with you about the Scriptures, about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about all these different things, and, and you get into this, just like I said, ask them questions. How do you understand it? How is that working out for you? Everything's just hunky-dory? Life is a bowl of cherries? No pits? You're all good? Your world philosophy is just, you know, taking you on into, where is it that you're going anyways? And wait, you, if you ask enough questions, and this is something that's, again, it's an excellent uh, witnessing technique. When people don't want to hear what you've got to say, <laughs> that's okay. Just close this and open these. Listen. 
Ask questions because they will come to the end of their rope. And it's not because, it's just because they're human. We all come to an end of our rope. We all have a limit to how far we can probe the depths of our theology or philosophy or worldview. There are very, very few super brilliant people. There just are that can riddle these things out to the nth degree. And they'll eventually come to the place where they'll have to say, I don't know. That's okay. And it's okay if you get to that place too. You're not expected to know everything. All you need to know is Jesus. That's the part that counts. He's got the answers. And so they said, we don't know. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Honestly, you can't tell me if John the Baptist is from heaven. The scriptures have been prophesying that he would come. Here he is. The people are following after him. Everything that he, the scriptures say he would do, he's doing. And as for myself, and you know Jesus doesn't bring this on him, all the things the scriptures said about me, they're happening too. What authority you need? We've got the scriptures, and we've got real life matched up against it. They, they, they match. It shows us our authority. Jesus, God, is the author of his story, history. It kind of reminds me of debating, arguing, if, if you will, with, with people. There's a, a funny little kind of, a, I guess, humorous joke type thing. It goes like this, a college student was in a philosophy class which had discussion about God's existence. The atheist professor presented the following logic. Has anyone in this class heard God? Nobody spoke. Has anyone in this class touched God? Again, nobody spoke. Has anyone in this class seen God? And again, Nobody spoke for the third time, so he simply stated, ergo, there is no God. Haven't heard him, haven't seen him, haven't touched him. One Christian student thought for a second, then he asked permission to reply. Curious to hear this bold student's response, the professor granted it, and the student stood up and asked the following questions of his classmates. Has anyone in this class heard the professor's brain. There was silence. Has anyone in this class seen the professor's brain? Silence again. Has anyone in this class touched the professor's brain? When nobody in the class dared to speak, the student concluded, then, according to our professor's logic, it must be true that the professor has no brain. <laughs> and you have, to, you have to look at this, this, this logic, this faulty logic and, and questions of authority. I've got libraries full of books by godly authors. You probably have heard of this one, Josh McDowell, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Maybe you've heard of this one, Many Infallible Proofs by Henry Morris. 
a couple others that I really like. Here's another one. The Biblical Basics for Modern Science by Henry Morris. Or the Genesis account. We had William Sarfati come. He wrote the book, literally, on the first 11 chapters of Genesis. Fantastic uh, apologetics, answers for why the Bible is true. I was just last week at a conf not last week, last month at a conference where Jason Lyle, another apologist who gives a defense of the faith, uh, he spoke on logic and faith, using logic to defend your faith. And uh, this video I love, Get Logical, Right Reasoning to the Glory of God, Using Logic on Your Behalf. And you know what all these guys have in common? Well, they do have some money. True, so do you, so do I. But every time you're asked a question, it always circles back to Jesus is the answer. And they have laid out a logical path for that. This Wednesday, we're going to have William Federer here, the foremost historian on the godly foundations of America, as well as God in history. This book I'm holding up, America's God and Country, an encyclopedia of quotations that goes down through American history. He's famous for his radio program, and you can get it on your um, devices and read it every month or every day, American Minute, where he gives some kind of insights as to how God is behind the scenes in all of his story. Uh, he spoke last time he was here, who is the king in America? And the truth is, it's Jesus Christ. Like it or not, he's the king. He can't change his position. Change to chains, rise of the tyrant has to do with socialism, Marxism, wokeism, all the things that I pray he speaks on when he comes this Wednesday. And I love this one, backfired. A nation founded on religious tolerance no longer tolerates its founder's religion. And you can sit here and listen to a man of God show you the facts, show you the empirical data, the sight, the sound, the taste, the touch, the feel. We can do all the science, but at the end of the day, if it doesn't bring you to Jesus, you're just out flapping in the breeze. And this is that question of authority. In 1 Peter... Chapter 3, we read at verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, one heart. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Jesus is modeling that for us this morning in Luke chapter 20. For, and this is now a quote from the Scriptures out of Psalm 34, He who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil." Peter now goes on explaining, and he who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what good? If God is for us, who can be against us? But even if you should suffer for righteous sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. 
But this is what you do. Sanctify, set apart the Lord God in your heart and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. He says, be ready to give a defense. That's that word I've been talking about this morning, apologia, an apology, an explanation. Be able to share what is the hope that you have. On what authority are you saying that Jesus has forgiven your sin? By what authority are you claiming that you're a child of God? By what authority are you assuming that you're going to heaven to be with those who also have gone to heaven before you who loved him? Where do you get your authority? Class? Jesus. The Bible. His Holy Spirit. Evidence. It all piles up to point us to Jesus Christ. I'm going to close with a parable that Jesus teaches. Worship team, you can begin coming on up here. Then he began to tell the people, okay? The religious hypocrites, the, the people who don't like him stepping on their racket, you know, cutting into their bottom line. He began to tell the people, all those gathered for Passover, the temple courts are crowded to the max, right? Just, just everybody packed in. And he says this, a certain man planted a vineyard leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country for a long time. Now, these people would immediately, their ears would perk up when he talked about a vineyard and vine dressers. In fact, on the front of the temple itself, as they all stood there, was a fresco of grapevines up on the building. Amazing. And so they're like, okay, he's talking about Israel, God's vineyard. He's talking about us. It says, verse 10, Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent another servant, and they beat him also, treated him shamefully, and sent him away empty-handed. And again he sent a third, and they wounded him and cast him out. Everybody this vine dresser or this vine owner sends, gets beat up, chewed up, spit out. Jesus is alluding to the prophets, the Malachi's, the Isaiah's, the Zacharias, down through history, who have been telling about John the Baptist, telling about Jesus. And every time he would send a prophet to Israel, they would kill their prophets. They wouldn't have any of what God had to say. They would treat them poorly. And yet, they were just coming to get the, the blessing of Israel. They were supposed to be a blessing to the world, a house of prayer for all nations. And people got, came there, and all they did was just get chewed up and spit out. This religion wasn't working. Verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. 
But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves, saying, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner do of the vineyard do to them? Pretty easy. You killed my messengers. You killed John the Baptist. You killed the prophets. And you're about to kill my son. What do you think? that owner of the vineyard, God the Father is going to do. It's not hard to figure out. The crowd standing there got it. It says, verse 16, He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. Oh, He wouldn't do that to us. You know, I, I love it in the Scriptures. It's going to come in a the end of this week that we're in, Jesus will be in the upper room with his disciples and he'll be passing around the, the bowl, the, the bread and the sop. And he who dips in the bowl with me will betray me. You remember what all 11 of the disciples said? Lord, is it I? But if you're so arrogant and self-assured and so confident that you couldn't fall, and say, certainly not. God would never judge America. I mean, Israel. Did I say America? Don't be so sure of yourself. Certainly not. Then he looked at them and said, when then, what then is this that was written out of Psalm 118? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but whoever falls it falls on, will grind him to powder. And the chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, but they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against them. That part got through. They recognized themselves in the story. We're the ones who are turning people away from their Messiah, from their Christ. All of our religious racketeering, all of us shaking down the people and, and, and profiting at their expense. They recognized who they were. But Jesus says, you know, this rock, this chief cornerstone, when you would build a building in ancient days out of stone, the most important stone was the one that went in the foundation on the corner. And off that, all the other stones lie. For starters, they'd have to be square. But all the weight of those walls would come to bear on that stone. And if that stone wasn't solid, if that stone wasn't reliable, the house could fall. And David in the psalm says that he has become the chief cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the foundation of all that Israel stands on, all that the world stands on. He spoke it into being. In Daniel chapter 2, we see the story of all these kingdoms that rise over the eons, followed by a stone, not cut by hand, that flies out of the heavens and smashes all the kingdoms of the world. That stone being Jesus Christ, that rock. First Peter chapter 2 says that he has become a stumbling stone and a rock of offense to all who would not receive him. If you would fall on that stone and be broken, he'll receive you, humbled out and repentant. You're safe, but if that stone falls on you, it'll crush you to powder. Je Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 tells the parable or the story um, of the house built on sand. But he who built his house on the rock, that house will stand. And this is the question for us this morning. If 
By what authority do you do these things? By your word spoken from time, before time, from your creation that speaks out? I'm God. I'm here. I love you. I made this all for you. I want to have a relationship with you. Seek me. I'll be found by you. By his son who walked the dusty roads of Israel, lived a sinless life. It's recorded not only in the scriptures, but all kinds of secular accounts. Claimed to be God himself. Went to the cross, died and rose again, proving, authorizing he is God himself. He is that rock. And the question for us today, when we find ourselves in the court of public opinion, is where are we going to park it? Where are we going to stand? Who are we going to source for our authority? What will we go to? If you just lean on the rock, stand on the rock, speak in the power of the Holy Spirit, the authority of God's word, he'll, he'll make a way. You don't have to be the rocket scientist. Much better that you would just be the broken, humble believer and follower of God. We're living in these days, dark days. Is anyone worthy? Is anyone worthy to receive the crown? Is anyone worthy of all glory and honor? Jesus is. Keep it simple, saints. Just keep it simple and worship Jesus. Amen? Father God, we want to thank you for the opportunity you've given us today to see how you would handle those who would come against you, those who want to argue, those who want to cancel you, those who want to crucify us. Thank you for your insights and your truth, your ancient truth, your eternal truth, truth that never changes, the rock, the solid rock of who you are. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your son, your spirit, brothers and sisters in the Lord, and you've even given us purpose, things that you would have each one of us do according to your name. I pray now, Lord Jesus, that you would just continue to rain down your spirit on us, that we would be empowered, authorized to go into all the world and preach the good news in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. Thanks for joining us today. To learn more about the Springs Calvary Chapel, please visit our website, at www.thespringscalvarychapel.org. Join us in person at the Springs in Hebron, Idaho, or here on the podcast as we worship together in spirit and in truth.